We'll be in Hebrews 7 today to kind of introduce us to this. It's an interesting text that we're going to be looking at. And this might be a text that you maybe haven't read before, maybe you're not super familiar with, maybe you haven't heard a lot of sermons on it. And sometimes when we come to a text like this, it gives us opportunity to pause and to think about the things we kind of cherish the most. Because a lot of times when we're kind of given a lot of new information or we kind of see all these details concerning something like the priesthood of Jesus, maybe it's a little more foreign to us. We have a tendency to kind of, you know, zone out or to not be as interested in the material because it's, you know, a lot of detail that's a little bit outside of the practical of what we're looking for sometimes. I think when we come to a text like this, it helps us to kind of do that pause and think as we consider what we love the most. And I think as we consider that just kind of as a way of introduction to our text, that which you love the most tells us the most about you. What brings you the greatest joy to your heart? Is it the creator, king, the priest, the friend of sinners? Is he the greatest affection of your heart? The first question to the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is quite telling. It says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that second clause can kind of be surprising, can't it? I mean, it could have just said, the chief end of man is to glorify God. And it would have been a perfectly sound theological answer. But by adding, and to enjoy him forever, they are telling us something about the preeminent design of man. To serve him, yes. To obey him, absolutely. To worship him, what a joy. But to enjoy him? What does it mean to enjoy God? Do you enjoy him? And just that thought can be a little perplexing. Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. We see this in the Psalms routinely. The psalmist just talks about how much he wants to be in God's house, to be in God's temple, to be in God's holy place, to just be a doorkeeper in the kingdom. That's all he wants. And that's not often how our heart feels, is it? The reason why sometimes we're lulled to sleep by sermons or things or detailed texts by things like what we'll look at today is because maybe our preeminent joy is not in the right place. Thomas Watson said this, he said, many love their deliverance, not the deliverer. And you want to know why? Because carnal man doesn't desire or delight to be in the presence of God. And you want to know why they don't delight and enjoy and strive to be in the presence of God? Because they are not right with him. You can't enjoy God if you aren't close to God. And it kind of brings us to where we're at in this text with these Hebrew believers. And if you recall our kind of short series on Leviticus 16, we did a number of years ago, it kind of gets us back into this context of Jewish converts who are coming out of that background for most of their life, maybe 30, 50 years. They were brought up in an upbringing where they had extremely limited access to God. Remember all the wonderful blessings that God had given them? He had showered these blessings upon them. They could be closer to God than any people on the earth. He gave them Moses. 
He gave them the scriptures. He gave them the priesthood, the temple. He gave them the covenant. And yet, that didn't really get them all that close to God. Did you know proselytes to Judaism in those days couldn't even come close to the temple? The average Jew was allowed a little bit closer. The Levites and just those serving as priests could get closer, but only one man for a few moments could stand in the presence of God. Access to God was limited. It was symbolized by a veil. And that curtain, that curtain told all men, you are not worthy. Now, this restriction was not due to the elite snobbery of God or anything. No, it was due to the righteous standard of the trice holy God and the sinfulness of man. And guess what? As covenant breakers, the old covenant didn't provide a solution that could fix this problem. As covenant breakers, you can't keep enough of the covenant to be right with God. No amount of covenant obedience can undo an ounce of the covenant disobedience of Adam, let alone your own. Can't happen. And so, We needed someone who can fulfill the covenant because he never broke it and then institute a new covenant to bridge the gap. And so with a transference of covenants, we have an access, a change in access from one of limited to one of great intimacy. So when the fulfillment of the type appears, the antitype, the type becomes obsolete and replaced. So that's what the author of Hebrews has been telling us for chapters to all the converts of Judaism that Jesus Christ is better than the entire Old Testament covenant. Jesus is the fulfillment of the priestly office and even under the old system, they could never get near to God. So again, it's inferior. They needed a true priest of which those old priests were just a shadow that pointed to him. We'll see those are the next few chapters of the book of Hebrews. A better priest, a better sacrifice, a better covenant. Think about that. These Jewish Christians would have been very confused. You know, they attached a lot of hope. Year after year, seeing the incense rise from the temple mount, knowing that their prayers were being heard in the very presence of God. The priestly garb had a lot of sentimental value a lot of theological meaning for them. All the trappings of that system, the the bulls, the goats, the rites, the rituals, all of them to be forever done away with? And more importantly, to make this point, the author of Hebrews has to explain to them how that is possible to someone who is not of the tribe of Levi, who is of the order of Melchizedek. And that's what he focuses on here today in Hebrews 7, 11 and 19. I know that's a little bit more of an introduction than we normally do, but I want to get you into the context here. This text is more than about priesthood, though. It has to do with God's entire old covenant arrangement. Let's read it. Hebrews 7, 11 to 19. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? 
For when the priesthood is changed from necessity, there takes a place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has ever officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with with reference to which Moses never spoke concerning priests. And this is clear still. If another priest arises to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there's a setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So, why in the case of Jesus Christ is the Levitical priesthood disregarded? And today our text gives us three answers to that all-important question. It'll sort of be our outline. First, it was ineffective, verse 11. Temporary, verses 12 to 14. And it was anticipatory, verses 15 to 19. And that'll be kind of how we outline the look at the three reasons why the Levitical priesthood has been disregarded with respect to Jesus. It's ineffective, it was temporary, and it was anticipatory. In the first word, we want to see that. What do I mean by that? It's ineffective. Verse 11. I said Jesus' priesthood surpasses the Levitical order because the Old Testament priesthood was ineffective. And by that, I mean that that priesthood was inadequate. It was incapable of producing perfection. What's the purpose of a priest? The work of a priest is to present to a deity the requirements to garner favor on behalf of those whom he represents. That's what a priest does. To draw near, to have access. You'll notice that's what couples this whole section. Verse 11 and verse 19, you see one term repeated that signifies this access that we need, and it's the term perfection. Perfection. You see that there at the beginning of verse 11? Perfection. When this term is used in the book of Hebrews, we see its semantic range is limited compared to other uses in the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, based on the context, it's used by the author with a semantic range that's very, very specific. It isn't perfectly reflected in how we use the word perfect in English oftentimes. A lot of times when we think of perfect, we think of, oh, without flaw. We think of without blemish. We think of without mistakes. We start to think morally. But in Hebrews, this term is not talking about morality. It's talking about completion. It's talking about fulfillment. So the term in Hebrews is speaking of the completion of God's redemptive plan. And so this priesthood has perfectly accomplished its intention. Those whom Christ represents have uninhibited access to God, a perfect relationship with him. The work of atonement, abridgment, reconciliation is done perfectly. There's nothing else to be done. And to make this point clear, to deal with the apparent issue that the Jews were facing, he uses what we call in speech a syllogism. 
A syllogism. A syllogism is a form of deductive reasoning where there's a major premise, a minor premise, and then a conclusion. And that's exactly what we see here. The major premise is this. If perfection was through the Levites, then there would be no need for another kind of priest. Minor premise. Drawing from that truth and what we saw last time in Psalm 110, that a new priesthood would come, one instituted by him. Well, if there's a new priesthood that needs to fulfill something then there needs to be a different kind of priest. Conclusion, the completion of the plan is in this new priest, perfection. So what is the perfection that was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood or under the old covenant? Let me clarify something real quick. It's not saying that there was no salvation under the old covenant. Clearly, people were saved. So that's not what perfection is saying here. It comes down to the nature, though, of what that old covenant did. Again, anticipatory, looking for something greater which would fulfill it. The foundation of it was laid in the words of our Savior when he breathed his last to Telestai. John 19.30, it is finished or completed. That's it. All things belonging to this great high priest, whereby the church was to be perfected, was accomplished. So, if it was not accomplished until the God-man fulfilled it in John 19.30, this means that the completion was never attainable through the old system. That that system was inferior from the very start. You know, it was always intended to foreshadow something greater. It was never the solution. It was always pointing to what was to come. You know, the old system couldn't save. It didn't save. So hear me on that. The old system saved no one. You may think, well, wait a minute. You said Old Testament saints were saved. Yes, but not through that imperfect system that was there to point to salvation in someone else. No, the priesthood, the tribe of Levi never took away a single sin by the shedding of all that blood. They cleaved animals in two. They butchered young lambs. They stripped them of their flesh. They sprinkled their blood all over the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. They massacred countless thousands of animals. They were soaked head to toe in blood, and yet not a single sin was ever paid for. You see in all this, the inadequacy of the priests. The priests were lawbreakers themselves. Remember Leviticus 16.6 says, Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. The largest animal sacrificed on the day of atonement was for the priest. Before he could offer atonement for anyone else, before he could make a sacrifice for anyone else, he had to make a sacrifice for himself. I mean, we could just sit here and think about the failures of the tribe of Levi for just a moment. Aaron was an idolater. Remember? He worshiped the golden calf. His sons, Nadab and Abihu, were struck dead for offering strange fire. 
unacceptable and unprescribed worship before the Lord. Eli was a glutton and a derelict father. 1 Samuel 2.12 describes Hophni and Phinehas as sons of Belial in the King James, corrupt in the New King James, scoundrels in the NIV. Why? Because Hophni and Phinehas used their priestly position to engage in illicit behavior, appropriating the best portion of the sacrifice for themselves and to engage in sexual relations with the secretary's serving women. Look, we can go on and on and on. But the prophets routinely tell us that the priests of the Old Testament were inadequate. Jeremiah 5, 31. The priests rule on their own authority and my people love it so. Ezekiel twenty two twenty six. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the profane. Micah 3.11, her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. Zephaniah 3.4, her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. And guess what? New Testament priests aren't any better. Matthew 27.20, but the chief priests and the elders Persuade the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. A few verses later, verse 41, Matthew 27. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking Jesus. Saying he saved others, he can't save himself. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and then we will believe in him. Is it any wonder why the Old Testament system is flawed? by having men like that as priests. Consider this, Leviticus 4.3 warns, if the anointed priest sins, he brings guilt on all the people. These priests were inadequate. And not only were they themselves insufficient, but we also see that they had insufficient sacrifices, didn't they? And that really shouldn't shock you much, should it? Right? How can a a, a flea-ridden brute beast of the field that walks around on all fours and eats grass be a suitable sacrifice for sin? It's inadequate on the face of it. If you want to turn over to Hebrews 10, we'll get here one day. Don't know when. Hebrews 10. I want to make a couple points here that show you a nice parallel. Hebrews 10.1. For the law... Since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So they didn't make anyone perfect. Verse 4 It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Do you see that? Impossible. It's inadequate. Verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You've seen a theme? It's impossible for that system to save anyone. It's unending because it's never sufficient. Now this audience, and maybe you here today might be a little confused. You might hear this. The priests are inadequate. The sacrifices they offered were insufficient. But 
But here's the confusion. Wasn't this institution put in place by God? Was there a problem with God's plan? Now, there are two possibilities why God would do something like this. With the obvious nature of its insufficiency, what one would be, well, God's weakness. God really wanted to save people through that system, but it just didn't work. He thought it would work, but, you know, he was just mistaken. Or really, the only real conclusion for the immutably twice, thrice holy God of all the universe, he planned it that way. He planned it that way. But why? God never intended to save men through that system. He designed that system for a completely different purpose. So in verse 11, we get the sense that the Levitical priesthood wasn't good enough for the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus's Melchizedekian priesthood is far superior. And we'll see secondly, the Levitical priesthood was always intended to be temporary or transitionary. Let's look at that in more detail. You can go back to Hebrews 7. We'll look at verses 12 to 14 for this. I'll read it. Verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken of belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. The Old Testament Levitical priests were temporary illustrations. Prefigurative may be a better word, but they were temporary illustrations pointing to something of substance. They prefigure something to come. The Levitical system was never the purpose of God's redemptive plan, but to point to the perfect priest who was that predictive plan and that perfect plan. So they were temporary. Hebrews 9, 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place was not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol or an illustration for the present time. See that? It's just an external, temporary illustration to prefigure the one who would accomplish this mighty work. The entire system was never intended to save. If it was then, friends, how disappointed would God be until he finally changed course and got it right? Oh, no, no, no. It was always intended to be a temporary picture. The priests of Levi were appointed to their position according to ancestry. According to the Levitical order, there were certain ways in which they were to be appointed to their position. And what we also see is that, again, their sacrifices were certainly inferior to what we would see sacrificed in the Son of God. But that's not necessarily the argument here. The argument is that they were designated in the economy of God as an anticipatory temporary illustration. They were never intended to bring in the fullness of the new covenant. He's saying that the old covenant priests by God's own design were never intended to represent the fullness, the culmination of God's work among his people. Jesus' ministry was that culmination. 
God never intended the old covenant priesthood to be permanent and to achieve the the things that his eternal son was intended to achieve. The argument is very simple. If the old priesthood had been capable of bringing about the kind of believing maturity and assurance that God desires for his people, then there would have been no need for Jesus Christ. And the very fact that Jesus has come is a reminder that the old priesthood was just a transitory shadow of the reality of Jesus Christ. So why has the Old Testament priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, been disregarded? Well, because the old covenant priesthood was attached to a covenant that has been replaced. The old system was intended to be temporary. And at the foot of Mount Sinai, God entered into a covenant relationship with Israel. We call that the Sinaitic covenant. And we see that through the Aaronic line, there was a law that established who could be a priest. Exodus 19 to 24 tells us all about that. I will be your God. The official covenant with those, those two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, in fact, again, if, if you don't know, if you don't know this or not, again, those two tablets of stone are so associated with the Sinaitic covenant that they are commonly referred to as the old covenant themselves. Exodus 34, 10. Then God said, behold, I'm going to make a covenant. And then verse 28, and he wrote on the tablets, the words of the covenant the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant. We see the Ten Commandments are at its heart. Now, back to verse 11 real quick, if Hebrews, to kind of help us with verse 12. You see the parenthetical statement there? It says, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. On the basis of what? Well, the Levitical priesthood. Priesthood and law. Those two things go together. The priest had a unique place in the Old Testament. He taught the law to the people. And when they failed, he had to offer sacrifices for their failures. Again, this temporary institution. And again, the whole economy of God is connected with this. But what do we see with the old economy? It's set aside. In other words, Judaism as it was is now defunct. And it is that way today too. There's a change in law, which means a change in dispensation, a change in divine administration. This at once fixes the meaning of law in that parenthetical clause to our verse of what we're looking at here. It helps us in verse 12 to see what it's talking about. When there's a change in priesthood, there's a change in law also. What does that mean? Let me tell you this. The reference is not to the Ten Commandments. It's not to the moral standards of God but to the Mosaic system of laws for priests. In this passage, Paul tells us that this new priesthood is not based on the laws of Moses or the ceremonial laws. It's not the Aaronic priesthood set forth at the time of Exodus. It's a different priesthood. And so he argues that since the old covenant priesthood was based upon God's laws given at Exodus, when we see a change in priesthood, It must mean that there was a change in the law that appoints those priests. And he carries this out by two arguments. We'll see one in verses 13 to 14. We'll see the other in 15 and 19. Let's look at it, how he expands this. What does this mean? It says, it is of necessity. There's got to be a change. One thing replaced with another. That's what the word change means in the Greek. Not hard to figure out. 
Well, what is the change? Follow along with me here as I kind of make an abbreviated kind of argument for this. What is the change? Hebrews 8. Go ahead and turn over there. It's just one chapter away. Might as well. Hebrews 8, verse 7. We'll start there. It says, Hebrews 8, verse 7, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Verse 8, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Finally, verse 13, When he said a new covenant, he made the first one obsolete. Obsolete? What does it mean by that? Well, the priesthood, the temple, the sacrifice, the law, everything connected with it becomes obsolete when the new covenant comes in. Well, when did this change occur? On a Friday afternoon around three o'clock. Do you recall that fateful day at noon to three where the sun refused to shine? Those words of our Lord ring out, it is finished. What's finished? All the law's demands were fulfilled in him. And you remember that veil that separated men from God, it was torn from top to bottom. A change in priest, a change in law. Now back to chapter seven real quick. Verse 13, it says, for the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to a different tribe. Jesus wasn't a Levite from which no one is offered at the altar. For it's evident the Lord has descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing about concerning priests. Do you see that there? If the Levitical priesthood is still intact, Jesus Christ cannot, by the law of Moses, be a priest. And if Jesus is a priest, then there had to be a change in the law of qualification for him. And these converts then, what does that mean? It means that they can't return to Judaism and be all right with God. You can't be under both systems. If the old covenant is still in place, then Jesus is an illegitimate priest. It's one or the other. But we see Jesus' priesthood is legitimate according to a superior order, thereby fulfilling and doing away with the law that established old order priests. And so those old priests could never get us to God in the first place. Again, it's Judaism or Jesus. You can't have both. He teaches us there that the new covenant priesthood, and again, you'll notice it says, that I say new covenant priesthood. You notice in that text and even later, it's not multiple. It's not plural. It's in the singular. Because in the old covenant, there were many priests. In the new covenant, there's one priest. There are not multiple priests of the new covenant. And that's why as Protestants, we don't refer to our ministers as priests because there's only one priest in the new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, there never was a priest from the tribe of Judah. The old covenant priests were all from the tribe of Levi. And yet Jesus was a priest. That must mean he is a priest in accord, not with those ceremonial laws of Moses established at the Exodus. No, And he goes to argue that this is obvious in light of the requirement of Jesus' priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. 
So the old priests couldn't get us to God. Perfection was never attainable through them. What stands us before God? Well, nothing about us, nothing in us, but Christ stands us before God. Christ in his priestly work stands us before God. So if Jesus' priesthood isn't based on the laws of the old system, what qualifies him to be a priest? The priest that we need. And what does he say? It's based on two things. The power of an indestructible life and the oath of God. Listen to what the author of Hebrews is telling us here. He's saying that while the Old Testament priesthood points to Jesus, by all those sacrifices, all those rituals, they point to Jesus, Jesus' priesthood is not based on those laws that descended from the tribe of Levi. It's based on something far superior. That brings us to our third point. Because the old covenant priesthood has been suspended are superseded by a better covenant, a better priesthood, which it anticipated. So again, Jesus is a better priest of a better covenant because the old system was insufficient. It was temporary. And finally, it was anticipatory. Let's look at that more closely in verses 15 and 19. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there's a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. You see those ceremonial laws that established Levitical priesthood to give them the right to be a priest? Didn't make those priests perfect. So his priesthood is not based on the external physical requirements of the law or the regulation of the law of ancestry, but on the basis of a superior power of an indestructible life. He doesn't owe his claim to the priesthood to an ancestral law. Remember those old requirements? Not any Jew could be a priest. You had to be legally from the tribe of Levi, legitimately born of two Levite parents. There were laws for this, for all those who would be a priest. You couldn't just become a priest if you wanted to. You had to be of a a legitimate marriage. You also couldn't have any physical defects. I don't know if you knew this or not, but in the law of Moses, there were 142 physical blemishes that would disqualify you from being a priest. That's a lot. Leviticus 21.18 gives us some of those. It says this, For no one who has a defect shall approach, a blind man, or a lame man, or he who has a disfigured face, or any deformed limb, or a man who has a broken foot, or a broken hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or someone who has a defect in his eye, or eczema, or eczema, scabs, whatever. The list goes on and on. There's a lot about externals to the rituals for the Levitical priesthood. How he was to bathe, how he was to dress, how he was to conduct himself in the ceremony with the blood. Details about washings, about anointings, about what he was to wear, about how he cut his hair, all external. But on the other hand, the qualifications of Jesus were not external. It wasn't based on his parents. It was based on the power of an indestructible life. 
And there's something really important here that I want to make sure you get. This is a testimony to the dual mediation of Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? Maybe you haven't heard that before. What do I mean by the dual mediation of Jesus Christ? I mean that Jesus was a priest. He was a mediator according to both natures. You know that, right? Jesus is one person, the second person of the Godhead, with two natures, one divine and one human. Now, a mediator must have communion with both parties, between those whom he is to mediate. You know, he can't be a mediator if he's connected to one party but separated from the other. If he doesn't have the self-same nature as the Father, then he's not a mediator, but he's separated. And if he doesn't have the self-same nature of man as a man, then he can't possibly mediate for men. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. You know, mediator is a personal title. According to the divine nature of the second person of the Godhead, he mediates God to us. And according to the human nature, the second person of the Godhead mediates us to God. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Remember Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. We can't understand God as he is. He had to be mediated to us. So Jesus must be a mediator according to his divine nature. He brings God down to us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. But he must also take us up to God. He had to be the son of man, consubstantial with us according to his humanity. Same flesh, remember? Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things. So he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Indestructible life. What does it mean? This doesn't mean that Jesus never died. In fact, that was vital for him. And being both simultaneously priest and sacrifice, he had to die a human death. But that death couldn't hold him. He died a death, a human death, followed by resurrection. And why was he resurrected? Well, for two reasons. One, it signifies his purity and that God vindicated him because, well, he died a death that was never due to him in the first place. But it's not just that, and that's not the argument even here. Jesus raised himself from the dead. This indestructible life is a reference to the fact that he is the son of God, the second person of the Godhead. John 10, 18, no one can take my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus says in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this body. In three days, I will raise it up. And he did. I remember he was our sacrifice primarily according to his humanity. I mean, that's why scripture attributes the offering not only to his person, but also to his body. First Peter 2.24. To his blood, Colossians 1.20. To his soul, Matthew 20.28. Nevertheless, it was 
his deity that rendered the oblation effectual, Romans 8, 3, as we heard this morning. And that's why we see in Hebrews 9, 13, he is represented as both the offering and the offerer who accomplishes his priestly work through the eternal spirit. Our great high priest must not only be both God and man, but he must act as God and man to accomplish the work of redemption. Let me sort of reiterate this truth regarding the dual mediatorship of Jesus Christ. Jesus was a mediator according to both natures. Jesus stands between two parties. So his priestly office of mediator is very important for us. Dual mediation does not mean separate acts. Some human, some divine. No. One person, one act. So how do we make sense of this? The most common example given in the early medieval church was to illustrate the unity of Christ's mediatorial operation was to point to the fact that Jesus healed a leper. Matthew 8, 3 and Matthew eleven five 5 are the examples. It's his human nature, the human nature of Christ, of his human body and soul that walks, that puts forth his hand, that touches the leper, and that physically speaks not the divine nature. However, has his human nature as such doesn't heal the leper, nor can it. Christ, by his divine nature, heals the leper. And yet, Christ does not heal the leper by his divine nature alone. Christ's person works by both natures to accomplish this work. Each nature doing what is appropriate to its nature. So we see perfectly wed the dual mediation of Jesus Christ. Christ's operation springs from both, both his divine and human wills, and it terminates in one complete effect, the healing of the leper. And yet, Christ's two natures are not mixed. They are not confused. Calvin uses the illustration of eyes. We have two eyes, yet one vision. So Jesus has two natures, yet one mediation of the one person according to each nature. And we see this in our text when it says the power of an indestructible life. He is appointed to this position of mediator by the power of an indestructible life. And again, this life was not merely the human nature considered apart from the divine. This is the life of the second person of the Godhead, the life of the Son of God of Christ as God and man. And so he has an endless life. And though he hangs on the tree, and though he breathes his last, and though he is buried, check this, friends, there's no interruption in the sacred office of that great priest. Not even for a moment. When his heart stopped, his mediation did not stop. For though he died, his person still lived. While both body and soul were inseparably united to the second person of the Godhead, although he was truly and really dead in his human nature, he was still alive in his indissolvable person. Let's look again at verse 16. Back to our text. The law of physical requirement gave authority and efficacy to the Levitical priest but Christ is made a priest according to the power of an indestructible life. That is the power and the efficacy of the eternal life, which is in his divine person 
Both his human nature is preserved always in the discharge of this office, and he is enabled to work out eternal life on behalf of those who are his, who he represents as a priest. Now look at verse 17. Based on the fact that Jesus lives forever and that God has sworn an oath to him as a priest forever, we see an important citation of Psalm 110. It's one of the, uh, the favorite verses of the New Testament authors to cite is Psalm 110. And you remember that in Psalm 110, verse 4, the words that were spoken to David's Lord. You remember how that psalm begins? The Lord said to my Lord. This is David, the king, talking about the Lord. Who's that? Well, that's Yahweh. That's the God of Israel. Said to my Lord. Well, wait a second. God said to David's Lord. Well, who's David's Lord? Jesus asked that question at one point in his ministry. Remember, who's David's Lord? And Jesus said, I'm David's Lord. I'm the Messiah. The Messiah is David's Lord. And the Messiah was promised in Psalm 110. Not only that he would reign as a king, but what else? That he would be, verse 4, a priest forever. And the author of Hebrews is saying, that's the thing that established the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He lives forever. And God swore an oath to him that he would be a priest forever. So Jesus' priesthood is not based on the law of Moses. It's not based on the Levitical descent. It's based on an indestructible life and the oath that God swore to him. Well, when did God give this oath to the son? Well, the father gave the oath to the son before the foundation of the world that he would be a priest forever according to a different order. What he calls, what we call sometimes in theology, the pactum salutis, the fact that the father promised that Jesus would be a priest of the new covenant. Okay, I need to stop and explain that just for a moment. You know, Adam was under God's law. And when Adam sinned, he came under the curse of death. But the Lord made a promise to send a seed to the woman to crush Satan and to save his people. He made an irrevocable promise of grace to Adam in Genesis 3.15, didn't he? Praise the Lord. Genesis teaches us repeatedly, wait for the seed. To eagerly anticipate the seed of the woman. Eventually, the Lord makes a covenant with Abraham in which we learn that the seed of the woman is coming through Abraham's seed. God will be God to Abraham and his offspring forever. In Genesis 14, we looked at this last time, a priest named Melchizedek came and blessed Abraham. We saw in our, again our last sermon, Melchizedek resembled the son of God. He was the priest of the most high God. He is king of righteousness, king of peace. He comes from Jerusalem. He is a type of Christ and he came and blessed Abraham. Abraham had and he received and he believed the gospel. He heard the good news of his salvation. He believed and the righteousness of another was credited to him. Abraham waited for the coming of Christ. He saw him from afar, but he did not receive him in his life. God was committed to caring for his children as they awaited this son. So God places them under the care of the law of Moses. Moses' covenant was a temporary covenant to keep them in line until this son came. It existed to govern the people of God as they awaited the fulfillment of the promise. It gave them laws to keep their priesthood intact so they could have some kind of fellowship with him, so they could get close to him through that priesthood. But Moses' covenant 
could never perfect them. It could not itself bring them into the full enjoyment of God's covenant promises. Verse 18, notice how we have a greater covenant here. It reads, For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. So that former former regulation is set aside. The setting aside has a legal term. It's a term used in law for abolishing a law in annulments. It was used when a contract was made null and void. That's what the word means. The old regulation was weak, and once it was fulfilled, it would be useless to contender or continue under the modality of that law anymore, right? For the old law didn't make anything itself perfect. It couldn't make those priests perfect. It's a shadow anticipating the reality. It served its purpose by pointing forward. It prefigured, setting the need in front of the people time and time again. But it itself was not the substance. The sacrifices, the temple, were not intended to be permanent institutions. You know, a shadow can't do what a substance can do, right? Your earthly shadow can't do anything. It can't open a door. It can't drive a car. It can't move on its own. It can't lift anything into the air. No, a shadow reflects or illustrates the substance. The old covenant is a shadow for the better covenant, which is a better hope. And why is it a better hope? Because the priest of that covenant gets the job done. He accomplishes his task. That's verse 19. The hope that we have because of the perfection of this priesthood. And right now, on the basis of the indestructible life, this priest stands before the Father with his perfect salvific righteousness and he assures that his people can draw near to God. Now all can come close. The former restrictions are gone. We can come close. We have a better hope now, friends, so we can draw near to God. We can come close. Now, are we taking advantage of this fact? Do you draw near to God? Anywhere, anytime, at any moment, you can go to God. You can enjoy God through the Son in a way that the Old Testament saints really couldn't. In other words, the author of Hebrews is preparing to argue that the goal of God's grace work in believers is realized only in Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to argue this all the way through chapter 10. So you're going to have to bear with me. And at one point in chapter 10, you might remember, what's he going to say? He's going to say the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sin. So this argument begins here, but it continues on, friends, for three more chapters. His point is if you're going to have assurance, if you're going to draw near to God, if you're going to stand on that day in his presence, how are you going to do it? Well, not through the Levitical priesthood, only through Jesus. Christ the mediator is our righteousness and peace with God. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21. The second Adam who kept the law perfectly, the priest who needed no atonement for himself has come. The eternal priest who offered for all time a single sacrifice, a single sacrifice, and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has come. The permanent priest who can save to the uttermost has come. When he came, he fulfilled all righteousness in his law-keeping life. And he went to the cross and became a curse for us. And then he declared with his last, it is finished. It was then 
that perfect righteousness before God and peace with God was purchased for us. That's what makes us perfect. His priesthood didn't end. He continues as a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So what does that mean for you right now? His ongoing intercession is vital for Christian assurance. And that's what the author of Hebrews is concerned about. He's concerned about making it clear that Jesus's priesthood itself is not patterned after the old priesthood, but the author of Hebrews is stressing that it is the culmination of it. It's not to be repeated. The sacrifices are not to be repeated. No mere human, but the God man, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the one who intercedes for his people. He's the one who you need to mediate for you. You have one mediator. Guess what? I'm not your mediator. The elders aren't your mediator. Jesus Christ is your mediator. And what is this perfect that the Old Testament, Old Testament system couldn't get us to? It couldn't make us right with God. It couldn't take us beyond the veil. It couldn't make us stand in his place. It couldn't make us perfect in the sight of the most holy God. But Christ's priesthood will get us there. It will get us to the perfect intention that God had for us in our initial creation. And I know you may not see that today. And if you're being honest with yourself and you've evaluated your shortcomings in any time, you might think, I ain't perfect and I don't know how I ever will be. God's purposes for us as believers, again, as he works grace in our lives, his purpose is for our maturity to be more like God, which again, culminates as we stand before God. We're growing in sanctification from one degree to another and some days don't look as good as others, but in glory. In our glorified humanity, we have a perfect man who takes us there. We will be perfect before the Lord. God intends us to be perfect, actually better than he originally made us. And what gets us there? Jesus Christ. And that perfection the Old Testament couldn't give us is something more important than just getting to heaven. Just the benefits. It's perfect communion with God. And if that doesn't sound inviting to you, then you've never treasured the Savior. It's perfect communion with God, which is our happiness. It is the very heaven of heavens for us. It is the beginning of heaven here on earth. The only foundation of this communion with God is the eternal promise that is established by this kind of mediator. I'll end with this quote from Spurgeon. He said this, quote, He who doesn't long to know more of Christ knows nothing of him yet. So that's the question. Do you long for Christ? Well, friends, if you do, drink from the well of the water of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today. We thank you as you walk with us through this life. As you have prepared something far greater, far superior than we could have ever devised or thought or sought. Lord, you give us these wonderful illustrations that we can treasure from the old that point us to the substance of the new. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our perfect mediator who stands for us even now. In the name of our high priest, we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. 
Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.